Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. In Hebrews, the first warning we saw in chapters 1 and 2 is pay attention. Do not ignore God's word delivered by his son. The second warning or layer is to take care Exhort one another, encourage each other. In other words, don't refuse to believe the gospel. He says that in chapters 3 through the first half of chapter 5. And then as Caleb preached for us last week, you see the third warning. Don't dwell on your spiritual immaturity by doing nothing. Caleb made the point last week. You want to become spiritually mature? Do nothing. Spiritually immature, do nothing. You can be up here next week. (laughs) Do nothing. And you will grow more spiritually immature. And so in this section from chapters 3 all the way to the end of chapter 10, it is a call for us to go on to maturity. And then we'll see in chapters 11 and 12, we are to run with perseverance. Don't be disloyal to Christ. When persecution comes, as these Jewish Christians were experiencing. And then lastly, hear his voice. It is the truth. Don't refuse to hear God's gracious word. So it's like an artist, this pastor, who we don't know his identity, preaching this sermon to Jewish Christians, people who have placed their faith in Christ at great personal expense. Pay attention. Take care. Go on to maturity. Run with endurance. Hear his voice, which is the truth. And as you begin to look at the book of Hebrews, all of a sudden, it is as though you are looking through all of the Old Testament to see radiating out of the Old Testament the beautiful hues of the work of your Savior for you. Because Jesus is better. And so, verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6 continues the warning that we began last week. And he turns from warning us to go on to maturity. I know your friends have left the faith. It's impossible for them if they've left the faith and they're running away. It's impossible for them without repentance to come back. Go on to maturity. And he gives for us an example of Abraham. And so would you stand with me as we read God's word? Verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation." For when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Father, would you help us to see the beauty of your word and to be encouraged through this warning, which is to comfort our souls and help us to see men like Abraham upon whose shoulders we stand, who point us to the Lord Jesus. So prepare our hearts to come to your table this morning. We ask even now in Jesus' name, amen. God's character and covenant is the anchor for our souls. God's character and covenant is the anchor for our souls. Now, you English majors, this is driving you crazy because why isn't it his character and covenant are the anchor for our souls? Well, the truth is God's character and covenant are always together. God cannot lie. He cannot change. And he's made a promise to us that he will fulfill the promise that he first made to Adam and that there will be one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. And then many, many years passed and he made a promise again to Abraham. And that promise was what? He took the son of a moon worshiper, Abraham, for that's what it says, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, he took Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and then again in 15 and then in chapter 17 and again in chapters 22. And God made a promise to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations. I will give you a seed. And I will bless you. And you will be a blessing to the peoples. And God made this promise to Abraham. He made this promise to Abraham by swearing upon himself. <laughs> now, what does that mean? When you and I make a promise, we oftentimes will, when you bought your house or you signed your contract for your apartment or for your, your dorm room or you agreed upon some legal contract, you signed your name and it had conditions that if that contract was broken, there are certain consequences that would happen. Now here's a question. If you own the entire world, you made it by the word of your power, what, how, do, how does God swear by something that will hold him accountable? He is unchanging. Those of you who are in the legal profession know that when you go to court, you put your hand on what? On the Bible, and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. As if to say, if I lie in this court, then the judgment of God comes upon me. But God is God. Upon what does he swear? And so it's interesting, isn't it, that when God makes a promise to Abraham, the author of Hebrews, the pastor, says he swore on his own name. Notice what it says. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. Surely, being blessed, I will bless you to be a blessing. There's alliteration in the Greek. And multiplying you, I will multiply. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, 
obtain that promise. God's character and his covenant is the anchor for our souls. And what is the basis of his promise that he will hold on to you? The basis of the promise that he will hold on to you is illustrated by the story of Abraham. Abraham was the son of a moon worshiper named Terah that God picked, not because Abraham was the best or brightest or he was the, had it all put together. God loved Abraham because he loved him. And he set him apart. And he promised him, I will give you a son, which was a shocking thing to tell someone 90 and 99. And Abraham thought he could have a son. And so he, with his wife's help, brought in Hagar, his hand, her handmaiden, and they had a son, Ishmael. And God says, nah, that wasn't the way that the deal works. I will give you and Sarah a son. And so it says that he, having patiently waited, what does that mean? It's a reference to the 25 years he waited to have a son after the promise was made. He waited and he obtained the promise. What's the promise? The promise was Isaac, his son. And the pastor of Hebrews in the sermon is saying, look back at Abraham, who admits all of your persecution. Abraham believed God's promise and he waited patiently. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. You'll see later in Hebrews chapter 10 that, you know, they went to visit those who were imprisoned and they lost their homes when they went to go visit those imprisoned. They broke into their house. They stole their flat screen TV. They ransacked their kitchen. They spilled everything all over the place. They broke their windows. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says, I want to commend you. Because what did they do when they had everything stolen from them? They sang that they would be worthy of such persecution for the sake of God's name. I mean, can you imagine... Your car is stolen, your 401k is stripped, and you sing because you believe God is your provision. And he says, oh, go back into the Old Testament and remember Abraham, who was the example par excellence. He was faithful and he waited. And the author of Hebrews is trying to drive the point home to them. And he says, not only do you have Abraham to look at, but God made an oath. He didn't have to make an oath. He made an oath in order for us to reckon, recognize how serious God was. He came to us through visible signs that we would understand like an oath. And he made an oath. And because there's nothing outside of God to hold God accountable to being God... He swore on himself and he said, if this promise is broken, he will cease to be. There is no greater way for God to promise you that what he has said in the gospel he will do than by saying that I swear upon my own existence. Can you fathom that? And do you know that if you were to be the only one to live in time or history, you, your Father in heaven would have sent Christ for you to bring you into his church because he loves you because he loves you. What is the basis that we have to believe that he will hold on to us? Well, it's the example of people like Abraham and it's a picture 
that he will make an oath. And upon that oath, he swears upon his own name. And he did this because he desired to show us more convincingly, verse 17, to us who are the heirs of the promise that we are the sons of Abraham, to show us that the same way he promised Abraham, it is a promise for you. Oh my gosh, I wish I knew how to communicate it better. God's promise for you is rooted in the character of who he is. And his covenant promises to us are as sure as anything you have ever experienced in this life and more so. Because he is faithful to his own namesake. And so the question becomes, why would God do that? God has an immutable purpose. It's an unchanging purpose. He is going to hold on to you. And he is going to do something that is absolutely impossible. He is going to provide for us a sacrifice for sins that's not going to involve, for Abraham it did not involve Isaac, but he provided a ram in the thicket. As a picture for us of how he provides for us Jesus on the cross, who was the true lamb of God. That is what John the Baptist says the first time he sees Jesus. In John 1, 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, he is the true ram. He is the one that came to be sacrificed for us because God was a father whose hand was not restrained when he brought down the knife upon Christ on the cross. Shocking love. And he did this to convince you of his unchangeable character. He did this to convince you of his unchangeable character, his immutable character. It doesn't change. It's always and forever. Do you believe that? And isn't it like an amazing comfort to know that he never changes? Think about all the things. I was driving up here early this morning before I dropped, I dropped Annie off to help with the setup team. And we were talking about all the changes that have happened even since she and Andrew were young children and the difference between Andrew and Annie, my two oldest children, and Bennett and Augie. And there's like four years difference. And it just seems like there's been an enormous amount of change in the ways that technology's invaded the family and the ways that we raised Andrew and Annie versus the ways that Bennett and Augie are being raised. There's four years and yet when I come and I see the beauty of the fact that God never changes, it's a profound comfort to me as a father. When you come to worship, the technology may be different, but you know that you worship together with people all over the world. Some of them are sitting outdoors in the rain, worshiping the Lord because they know that Hebrews 10 is real and true and they don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but they encourage each other all the more as the day approaches. You know that you stand together with brothers and sisters outside of our church and you link arms with them to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. That there is a group of people, when you leave children, when you leave Tulsa one day and you go and you find your home in another city, do you know what the Lord has waiting for you there? He has waiting there His unchangeable purpose for you in the presence of a church where you will find rest in the gospel. That's the beauty of Christ's covenant body. He wants to convince you of his 
unchangeable purpose. And secondly, he wants to encourage us toward perseverance. He wants to encourage the Hebrews toward perseverance because he wants them to have encouragement to hold fast to the hope. What he says in verse 18. Two unchangeable things are the character of his purpose and the guarantee of his covenant. His purpose, his oath, his character, his covenant. Children, do you see the little anchor that's on your sheet? You can write character and covenant because that is the anchor for your soul. And so what do we do about it as we prepare to come to the table? Well, verse 18 says we are to flee to him for refuge. We are to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And then the pastor gives us three images, three metaphors to help us recognize it. He says that we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in verse 19. An anchor of the soul. Do you know what an anchor is? You know, if you go out to, to Grand Lake or Three River or you go uh, to Shangri-La, I was talking to Paul about this earlier, you know, that Shangri-La has this amazing replica of the anchor in the USS Oklahoma. The original ship had three of them. And in this replica, it's just, it's amazing. It stands like it would be as tall, it's almost as tall as that basketball goal above my head. It's massive. It weighs 19,000 pounds. There were three of them on that boat. It is an anchor. And what does an anchor do? It holds the vessel still amidst the raging seas. It keeps them in one spot. It protects the boat from being swept away. And as big as the USS Oklahoma's anchor is, one of the biggest anchors in the world is on the Seawise Giant. It's an anchor that if we were to have it in this room, it would stretch all the way to the ceiling. And it would be as wide almost as these speakers are. It weighs 72,000 pounds. And if you were to just sit on one of the massive anchors to hold these enormous, giant vessels still amidst the raging seas. Now, this word is an is a often used metaphor in, in ancient Christian literature. But, you know, in Scripture, it's only used one other place in the New Testament. And it's where, where Paul is describing a shipwreck where they let down four anchors. They needed four of them to try to keep the boat from drifting away. They dropped the anchors, he says, in, in Acts uh, chapter 27, verse 29. But here, it's a picture of Jesus who is for you, your anchor. And there are flukes on an anchor. Those are the, those are the teeth, the barbs that come off of an anchor. If, if you grew up sailing, you know the, the term fluke. These flukes are a picture for us of God's character and God's covenant. They are what anchor us in. It is not your good works. It is not your consistency. It is not the number of days in a row that you've read the Bible through the year, although that is a wonderful thing to do. And yes, we should read God's word and treasure it every day. But that is not what anchors you in. It is God's character and it is God's covenant that anchors you to the rock. Because some of you have had incredibly stormy years. One of the, one of the interesting things about seeing the way that churches um, design their buildings in light of metaphors in Scripture, did you, did you, um, do you know that 
the part of the church where you're sitting, do you know what in a traditional church that's called? It's called a nave. Do you know why it's called a nave? Because it comes from the Latin word for ship, novice or novice. Because when they built buildings, if you can imagine, they would look up and they would see in these Roman basilicas and later in these Gothic churches, they would see the trusses holding up the center part of the church. And what did they think that looked like in a world where there was so much seafaring? They thought it looked like we are in the hole of a great ship. And so they called it the ship, part of the church. They called it the nave. And so if you look on your handout, the trusses that are being in our church, just we took them and just inverted them and moved them together. And it looks like the whole of a ship. But really, those are the trusses that will be above us. And it's a picture, as Augustine said, that when you come into the church, you come into the safe harbor, anchored by God's character and covenant, into the ship, which is the church, to protect you from the stormy seas and to set you apart from the world. So that of all places in the world, the places you can be the safest is in the context of the church, protected spiritually and sometimes protected physically. There are people in our church who have had to be physically protected from others. And where did they find safe haven? They found safe haven at this church. There have been people who have been incredibly traumatized because of past experiences. And where did they find safe haven? They found safe haven in the counsel and admonition and care of the elders of this church. There's a, there's a woman, I've told the story before, who was in Florida, who had a young child, and she was dying of cancer. And she met with the elders before she died of cancer, and she said, I have no one to leave my child to. And I'm filling out my estate plan, I'm doing my will, and I am leaving my child, if you'll have them, to the elders of this church. To trust you, to do with him what you think is best, because this is my family. And that young man grew up in the church. He's thriving today and still a Christian as an adult. Jesus is the anchor for your soul. Do you believe it? Not only that, but he gives the image also of the inner place, the forerunner. He says that we now have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What does that mean? Behind the curtain, what does that mean? It means that in the temple in the Old Testament, there was a place marked off called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go in on Yom Kippur one day a year. And Leviticus 16 tells us about this, if you want to go home and read it. And he would go in and he would, he would offer sacrifices to the Lord, and they would tie a rope around his ankle lest he do something that profaned God, and he would be struck dead with fear and trembling. He would go into this Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the temple veil, the curtain that set apart the Holy of Holies, was ripped. And was it ripped from the bottom up or from the top down? It was ripped from the top down as though physically it's impossible for it to have ripped from the top down except if God himself did it. And he ripped it from the top down saying, now you have access. Now, come, you have access. And we were able, as we're going to sing later, to go before the God above. Because we have a strong and perfect plea. We have a great high priest whose name is love, the Lord Jesus. Whoever lives and pleads for me. 
For I, the Lord, do not change, Micah 3, 6 says, Malachi 3, 6. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Our names before the inner place in the Holy of Holies are graven on his hands. Our names are written on his heart. And we know that while in heaven he stands at the Father's right hand, no tongue from thence depart. No tongue can bid us thence depart. We are welcome there. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all of our sin. Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundation of the, of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them nevertheless like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. To look on Jesus and pardon me. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His covenant and his character, his immutable purpose and his faithful promise are the anchor of our soul. Behold him there, O Christian, the risen lamb, our perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory, and of grace. God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. He has said he will do it. He has spoken, Numbers 23, he will fulfill it. Do you believe that? Fathers in the church, have you seen uh, the Netflix documentary, The Quarterback? At Presbytery yesterday, one of the pastors mentioned this to us. It's the story of the quarterbacks in the NFL. Some of you, have you, anybody seen it? Okay, some of us. Yeah, thank you. I, I see some women who have seen it. All right. So I should say maybe late ladies, have you seen it? Um, and one of the quarterbacks that they uh, follow is Kirk Cousins, who's an amazing athlete. Quarterback from the Minnesota Vikings. And yet people have wondered, is this day done? Is he, is he wiped out? Is he, is he, has he been washed up? He's only won one playoff game in his career. I mean, he had incredible promise, but he just seems to not help get his team over the hump. And in this Netflix documentary, the most beautiful part of the documentary is when they show Kirk Cousins at home with his family. He leaves the, the roar of the stadium and it shows him at night with his son. And he says to his son, the cameras are rolling. It is the real cousin family. There's, and he says, are you ready to pray? The son says, yeah, daddy. He says, let's sing together. And Kirk Cousins sings over his son. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, thank you for protecting Daddy today, for helping protect him this season. Thank you for Mommy and all that you have done for us through her hard work. Would you bless us as we sleep tonight? And would you remind us that more than anything else in the world, we are yours. Amen. To picture, fathers, of us singing the metaphors over our children, of being an anchor, standing on the rock because Christ is the true anchor for our souls, that he has been the one through whom the curtain was torn top to bottom so that we could come into the throne of grace and provide, lay down, say all the things we need before Jesus, the forerunner on our behalf, because we have a great high priest, as we talked about. Jesus was the one who intercedes for us so that we might be able to find rest in him.